0: Okay, how's that? Perfect. Rod, thank you very much. Thank you especially for telling a story about a dynamic preacher immediately before an Englishman gets up to, to preach in the middle of the afternoon. So um, I hope you guys make yourselves very comfortable. <laughs> um, you can put your feet up on the seat in front if you need to at any point. Um, hey, would you please grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll read to us the next few verses, verses 18 uh, through 25, Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is God's word. Isn't it amazing we have a God who speaks to us? Well, a quick question as we get on. Let's see if any of you know the answer to this. No Googling is allowed. Um, who, Who would like to guess when the first ever instance of a mic drop took place? Anyone know when the first ever recorded instance of a mic drop took place? Anyone want to guess a year? No one does, that's fine, I'll I'll tell you the answer. It was actually 1965. And the first mic dropper was Judy Garland. Apparently it was on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1965. She did the mic drop thing. It's that old, it's been around that long, but it's only really been in the last 10 years that it's actually become a thing. Um, Everyone from President Obama to to Prince Harry has got in on this, it's become memes. do you say gifs or gifs, whichever way around that's going to be said, Um, emojis, all the rest of it, it is the ultimate way of gesturing that you have just ended the discussion. That after that stunning thing that you have just said, nothing else needs to be said. Okay, that is it now, we are done. Nothing better conveys that than a mic drop. Well, they did not have microphones to drop um, in first century Corinth, but they would have loved the concept. Um, Perhaps more than anything else, Corinthian culture prized wisdom. Uh, By wisdom, we don't mean biblical wisdom of, of living in a way that goes with the grain of who God is and how he's made this world. We don't mean the kind of wisdom we think of in our our own culture today about being shrewd or having people smarts, wisdom then for people in Corinth was having a a way of making sense of the world that was demonstrably better than all the others um, on offer. Having a way of thinking that could account for more of the way the world is than anybody else's way of thinking. That was wisdom in their day. That was what they most seemed to cherish. And the way of demonstrating you had that wisdom was in the cut and thrust of debate. And so rhetoric and oratory were what most commended and demonstrated that you really did possess the best kind of wisdom. And so there was lots of kind of philosophical jousting, there was lots of debating, and let's see who's the most impressive, let's see who comes out of this looking the best. And it was evident that this way of thinking had very much seeped into the church. Now, Paul had helped to plant the church in Corinth, it was during his second uh, missionary journey, I think in the early 50s AD, from what we can tell. But in the intervening time since Paul had been and gone, they had begun to think that actually Paul's message, Paul's ministry, is just not going to cut it in their culture. Paul is just not good at doing that whole kind of Corinthian thing of showing that you have the real answers. Um, They were looking for for more impressive ways to win the attention of their city. They were looking for leaders who had better-sounding arguments than the alternatives, leaders who had better oratory, more eloquent kind of speech. And in their minds, they had kind of moved beyond Paul. Paul had got them up and running, and that's great. Paul was the kind of, you know, he was the Allen key that helped them you know set up the flat-pack church, if you like, But now they they kind of needed to go beyond Paul. They'd left Paul behind. They really now needed something that was more sophisticated. Uh, They weren't convinced that Paul was able to meet the challenge of their times. You know, Paul's ministry, that, that was great out there in the kind of out there in the regions. People are more simple over there, but this is Corinth. This is sophisticated. And the thing is with Paul is you're never likely to have a mic-drop moment with someone like Paul. He doesn't seem to understand that's the way you do things in Corinth. That's the way you win people. That's the way you get a hearing. And so they've moved on. Uh, they were thinking, the only way you can really reach Corinth is by out-corinthing Corinth. So we need to do what our culture is doing, but just do it better than they're doing it. That will show that what we believe has got the edge on what they believe. And for that, you needed someone who could do the mic drop thing. So Paul writes in this letter, really as an urgent corrective, they may think they're just moving on from one kind of style of ministry into another from one form of cultural engagement into a better one. They may think they're just moving on from one particular model of ministry. Paul is concerned they are actually moving on from the gospel itself. They're moving on from Jesus if they're not careful. He needs them to know that what they are placing their confidence in actually goes against the grain Of the gospel itself. This is not neutral. I think it was um, Jared Wilson, uh, the the Christian writer and and speaker, who I I first heard it put this way from. But he said once, what you win someone with is ultimately what you are winning them to. What you win them with is what you're winning them to. And so our method in how we engage our culture, how we commend Christ to our culture, is going to say something about the gospel we are commending. So Paul writes to issue that corrective, and I want to suggest that is a corrective we need today. Like the Corinthians, we find ourselves in a challenging cultural context, and it's getting more and more challenging, not less and less. Uh, More than ever, perhaps in the lifetime of of any of us here this afternoon, Christianity is now regarded as being implausible. Um, At its best, it's hopelessly out of date. At its worst, and, and more commonly, it's actually dangerous. It's a threat to people's emotional and psychological well-being. The number one objection I hear to the Christian faith is that we are responsible for young, LGBTQ-plus people committing suicide. That is on us, according to many of the, the voices in our culture today. And we feel that sense of disdain. And maybe some of us are, are conscious of the fact, and, and increasingly concerned about the fact, that we don't seem to have knockdown down arguments that just resolve everything. We don't seem to have the kind of snappy one-liners that that totally win the arguments. Maybe we worry that our faith just doesn't feel that persuasive. It seems to be everybody else who has the better hashtags. It's everybody else who does seem to have the mic drop moments. And so, just like the Christians in Corinth, it's tempting to think, well, let's try to out-culture our culture that's the way to go forwards here. Let's try to do what our culture is doing, but just do it better and go further. And so let's try and adopt the same kind of posture, the same kind of identity politics, the same kind of outrage, and that will be what gets us our hearing. And if we can just do it better than they can, maybe that will be what persuades them. And so Paul has a warning for us, inasmuch as that is our temptation. He's already anticipated that warning in the words of verse 17. Uh, He writes, Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That is a shocking thing to say. Paul is not simply saying, "I, I just can't find Words of eloquent wisdom. You know that's just not me. I wish I could and I try, I just I just not wired that way. I can't ever seem to get those kinds of words. Paul isn't saying I can't do this. Paul is saying I am deliberately not doing this. It may well be from Paul's education. Paul I'm sure if he wanted to, he could pull words of eloquent wisdom out of the bag. Uh, We know from his other writings in the New Testament, Paul was an amazing wordsmith. But his point here is, listen, if I went down that road, if I had words of eloquent wisdom, if that is the the method I use to preach the gospel, the gospel I would preach would lose its power. Because I would be unpreaching in my method something of what i am trying to preach in my content if all i'm doing is trying to outculture culture to win them to jesus actually what i'm winning to them to is not the jesus who hangs on a cross now again that was shocking to them because words of eloquent wisdom that was how you won That was what gave you cultural power. But Paul is saying it also puts you at loggerheads with how the gospel works. So Paul goes on in verses 18 to 21. He begins to show us just how impotent human wisdom actually is. So he explains it in verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Again, they were looking for words that would, that would seem to culture as eloquent wisdom, and Paul is saying, the message we have is folly to people. Paul isn't denying that. Paul is actually affirming their concern. He's saying, yet yeah, that the word of the cross is folly. That's true, it's real. The the message of the cross really is deeply unimpressive. It really is unsophisticated. It really is the stuff of derision. It really is the stuff that is gonna be made fun of on late night comedy shows. That is the nature of the message of the cross of Christ. So Paul is saying, listen, I I see the same thing you're seeing. This message often is nothing more than folly to the people that we're seeking to reach. But that is not the only thing that is going on. That is going on, but it is not the whole story. Yes, it is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are perishing are not the only people who are out there. Seeing the cross as folly is not the only response that there is. So Paul says, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now the Corinthian culture would have had its own way of, of kind of Uh, sorting humanity into different kind of groups. You'd have had those who were Greeks, those who were non-Greeks, you'd have had those who were free, those who were slaves. They would have had their own kind of rankings of what kind of people were sophisticated, what kind of people weren't. Paul is introducing a very different kind of distinction. It's a far more fundamental one. There really are only two kinds of people in this world. And this distinction is the one that is determining of everything else... That is true about humanity. That is whether we are those who are perishing or whether we are those who are being saved. Those are the only, fundamentally, the only two types of people that there are. And it all hinges on how the message of the cross of Christ lands on us. To those who are perishing, it is utter nonsense. It is laughable. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the message of the the cross of Christ that most conveys to us God's ability to do what we could never do. It is the cross of Christ where we're seeing God do what only God can do. Which is rescue people like us. Paul goes on in verse 19 that it's no accident that this is the case. The fact that so many people think our message is just ridiculous, actually, that is not an accident. God had always said that was going to be the way things worked. It's not a sign everything's going terribly wrong and you need a different message. So he says in verse 19, it is written. This is what God gave us a heads up about hundreds of years ago. It is written. This is from the book of Isaiah. "Um, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God has always said, I'm going to take down human wisdom. And I can't take down human wisdom if I'm trying to imitate it. God has always said he is going to take the best this world has to offer, the best take any culture has for why the world is the way it is, and he's going to expose that for just how empty it really is. And that is what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is what the cross of Christ has done. It has shown just how impotent human wisdom is to really know anything. So, Paul asks these questions in verse 20: where is the one who is wise? You know, you've got all these different schools of, of philosophy vying for the kind of the top spot in a place like Corinth. You've got the Stoics, you've got the um, Epicureans, you've got all these different groups of people. They're trying to out-wisdom each other. So, Paul says: so, okay, where is the wise one? Who's, who's top of the pile at the moment? Who's, who's number one in the wisdom charts right now? Get the very best person you've got on offer right now. Bring them forwards. While you're doing that, where's the scribe? Where's the person who is, is most... most versed in the law of God? Your most qualified religious scholar? Bring them out too. Where is the debater of this age? So, okay, Corinth... Who is the best debater right now? Who is the finest orator, the most spellbinding speaker, the one who is drawing the biggest crowds and getting the biggest wows from, its, from their audience? Paul says, bring those folks forward. And here's the question for them. Did any of these people have the faintest idea why Jesus would have to come to this world? did any of them come even close to diagnosing what is in fact the heart of the human problem? Do any of those people have even the tiniest inkling of what God is actually doing in this world? Now, Paul is saying, you bring, you bring your finest... None of them saw this coming. None of them actually had fundamental insights into what is really going on in this world. That is how much stock we can put in the wisdom of this world. Your best and your brightest were clueless. And the same is true for us. Where is the one who is wise in our culture's eyes? Those voices that seem to be the the most significant culture shapers. Let's bring them out. Have, Have any of them really got their heads around what is actually wrong with us as human beings, none of them are actually getting us to the truth. The best wisdom of our age cannot help us on any of these spiritual matters. Uh, We might ask some particular questions of our own cultural moment. So we've had the sexual revolution, so let us ask, well, how's that working out? Where's that got us? Uh, Glyn Harrison is a retired professor of of, uh, psychiatry uh, from the United Kingdom. He was a professor at the University of Bristol for many years, and he wrote a book recently called A Better Story, uh, subtitled God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. Uh, Glyn is a a wonderful Christian thinker, and his, his conclusion in his book is, the sexual revolution has made us less happy and we are having less sex. Way to go, sexual revolution. Where is the wise one? Or we think about the gender revolution that we're in the middle of right now. Again, how is that going for us? These changes that we're trying to kind of make in the way that we think about biology and gender identity and all the rest of it, is it making us happier? Is it making trans people happier? Is it making women safer? How are we doing on that? The wisdom of our own age is not actually helping us. It can't actually get us anywhere that we need to go. So why on earth would we let the wisdom of our culture set the benchmark for how we ought to be you know, sharing the gospel, why is that setting the standard of what reason actually is? Paul explains why it is that the human wisdom is so impotent. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through Wisdom. So notice what Paul is saying there. (laughs) Through its own wisdom, the world has not known God. It never has. We will never wisdom our way to a knowledge of God. That will never ever happen. We won't figure him out. We, We just can't do that. But notice what else Paul is saying. That, that in itself is, is shocking enough. Actually, the wisdom of this world will never get us a knowledge of our creator. But the reason for that in verse 21 is because it is, it is God's wisdom for that to be the case. It's actually part of God's wisdom that human wisdom can't get us to God. God's wisdom is seen in showing up the impotence of our cultural wisdom. This has always been part of his plan. And so we shouldn't be surprised if by the the standards of our culture's wisdom, our message seems so pathetic. But notice what else Paul is saying. Verse 21 again. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who do believe. So the wisdom of this world will never find the knowledge of God, but God has enabled people to believe. And through believing to be saved... What human wisdom can never do, God has enabled to happen. And it's happening, he tells us in verse 21, through the folly of what we preach. Our ridiculous, unimpressive, unsophisticated message of the death of Jesus Christ, God can use to save those who believe. The message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is able to do what the best of human wisdom can never do. You preach this ridiculous message of Jesus on the cross and some people actually do come to know God. Isn't that amazing? And it's not because there's some loophole that, you know, we're exploiting that God didn't know about. We're told in verse 21, this pleases God. God is pleased that it's through this message that people can actually come to know him and be saved. In other words, our message of Jesus Christ, in all of its cultural unimpressiveness, has a power that is visible nowhere else in creation. Do you believe that? as we feel ourselves just ever more intimidated by our culture, do we think, yeah, but the gospel is more powerful? Um, Just turn with me back, keep a a paw in, 1 Corinthians, just turn back with me to Romans 1. Paul makes a a kind of parallel point here, and I, I love it because Roman culture was not dissimilar to Corinthian culture. Um, If you read Romans 1, the first, um, in the first chapters, verses 8 through kind of 16. It it sounds a bit like kind of housekeeping. Paul is kind of, you know, getting a bit of the, the housekeeping out of the way before he gets into the real message of the letter. But actually, if you read through these verses, reading between the lines, the Roman Christians had got it into their heads that Paul didn't want to come to Rome. They seem to assume that Paul was intimidated by Rome. And so they were saying to each other things like, well, you know, Paul is gallivanting around, doing all this other church planting. There's all these other bits of ministries he's doing. We've never seen him here. And no wonder, this is Rome. Again, Paul's Jesus shtick might work out there in the unsophisticated, you know, rural parts of, of the community, but this is Rome. And no wonder we've never seen Paul here. Of course Paul's intimidated. We're all intimidated. So listen to what Paul says. This is so instructive for us, intimidated by our own cultural moments. Paul says, verse 8 of Romans 1, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. I love that. It's the same point we heard John reference to us earlier from 1 Corinthians. Paul, just his immediate reflex, whenever he hears of Christians anywhere, is to thank God for them. He can't help himself. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. You guys are real. You're the real deal. We've all heard about your faith in Jesus, and it just makes us thank God. Notice what he says in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Now it is normal for Paul when he's writing to people to tell them that he prays for them, it's normal for him to share something of what he prays for them. He wants them to know what his kind of understanding is of what they need God to do in their lives. But notice what Paul does here, in this instance writing to the Romans about what he's praying for them. He actually pulls in God and says, hey, God's my witness on what I'm about to tell you. I'm on the record here. You can ask God about this and he will tell you it's true, Paul pulls in God as his witness because he's about to tell them that the very thing he's praying for without ceasing in verse 10 is that he can come and visit them. He says, you can ask God about this. God will tell you how much I pray to him that I can come to Rome. Verse 11, for I long to see you. I'm not just feeling that I I probably ought to visit Rome, that it just looks a bit bad if I don't. I I long to see you. I'm I'm desperate to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we uh, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You guys have a spiritual weakness that I need to attend to. Verse thirteen. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I've even booked tickets. I, kept, I, had, I had tickets booked. Vesuvius erupted. They grounded all the planes. I lost. I, I tried booking a ferry. The ferry workers had that strike. Guys, I've been trying to come to you. I can show you the receipts. He says, I have intended to come to you often, verse 13, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Paul is saying, you are just not that special. Yes, you're Roman. Ooh, that's, that's very impressive. But really, you're just like the other Gentiles. And so I fully expect to see the same harvest with you guys that I've seen everywhere else. You're not as different as you think you are. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and the foolish. I'm, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Let me at them. Why? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Same message as 1 Corinthians. The gospel is the power of God to save. And one of God's purposes is, In giving us the message of Christ crucified is to show up how empty the wisdom of our age really is. How on earth can we be intimidated by our culture? We have the message that will actually change people for eternity. No one can do what the gospel does. We really don't need to have our hands on the levers of cultural power to make a difference in this world. It will probably help if we don't. But if we have the message of Christ crucified, then God in his power will save those who believe. We do not need to lose confidence in the gospel. In fact, the more our culture ridicules the message of Christianity, the more warrant we have to preach the gospel. So back to 1 Corinthians. It will please God through the perceived folly of what we preach to save people who believe. So let's not move beyond the cross of Christ. Let's not move away from the cross of Christ. We don't need focus groups to tell us what will be a more palatable message to our culture. Only this message will save people. And the very human wisdom that intimidates us will itself be exposed By the preaching of the gospel, because people will see the gospel doing what human wisdom could never do. So let's move on to that in the next few verses, verses 22 to 25. We see the supremacy of God's wisdom at work. Now, Paul has already divided humanity into those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Now he takes those who are perishing and breaks them down into two further groups. And these two groups, according to um, the commentator Gordon Fee, represent the ongoing two basic forms of idolatry that continue to exist. So Paul says in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Those are two ongoing forms of idolatry. The Jews demand signs. Uh, We saw that in the the ministry of Jesus. Uh, The number of times people would say to him, listen, give us a sign, then we will know you really are the Christ. You give us what we demand, and yet we might do you the favor of believing in you, but you've got to jump through our hoops first. Uh, We know that the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would physically drive out the Romans. And so they were looking for signs of Jesus being that kind of Messiah. Give us that power. Show us you can do this. Jews demand signs. And again, that is still the case for so many people today. I will only believe in God if... God satisfies my definition of what he should be able to do. Jews demand signs. Paul says Greeks seek wisdom. Again, they regarded intellectual power as the ability to have a philosophy that just trumped everybody else's. And in contrast to both, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. And so the cross of Jesus is offensive to both groups of people in differing ways. It's offensive to the Jews who are looking for signs of power because the cross is is a sign of defeat. It's the sign of failure. It's a sign of, of impotence. It is the failure of power. To the Greeks, the cross is humiliation, it's folly, it's the failure of wisdom. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, this is amazing. Verse 23, to Jews and Greeks, the message of Christ crucified is Christ Notice the language, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is not just saying that the cross is beautiful to those who are called. It is. Paul is saying the beauty consists in the cross embodying the very things those two groups of people naturally see the cross lacking. In the very place where the Jews saw weakness now some can say Jesus, the power of God. In the very place where the Greeks saw folly, now some can say Christ, the wisdom of God. God has completely flipped everything. What we thought was folly is actually God's wisdom. What we thought was weakness was actually God's strength. And so Paul is saying the issue isn't just that we don't have enough wisdom and we don't have enough power, we just have entirely the wrong category. God's wisdom differs from ours, not just in degree. God's power differs from ours, not just in a matter of degree, but in a matter of definition and direction. We have the wrong idea of strength, the wrong idea of wisdom, and the cross shows us that. And so it is, Paul can say, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. That is what the gospel shows. The very things our cultures claim to cherish, we see most perfectly embodied in the cross of Jesus. It is the message of the gospel that shows the wisdom of God to be truly wise. We see that. I want to give you a few examples of this when it comes to issues of of human sexuality, given that is seemingly the, the kind of main area of thought in which our culture most thinks it's wise and most thinks we are foolish. Our culture thinks it is wise on equality. Um, A while ago, I was speaking at a a secular university up in Canada, and there was a a large group of LGBTQ students who were uh, present. One of them came up to me afterwards, and he said, listen, I'm not a Christian, but I've I've read your book, Is God Anti-Gay?, twice. So I felt I had to apologise to him for for that. He then said, listen, I'm I'm actually meeting up with a pastor, and we're going through Mark's Gospel, and I'm, I'm now kind of going to a church small group. And I said, okay, you're doing more Christian stuff than most people in my church are doing. So I said to him, What is drawing you to the message of Jesus Christ? And he said, and these are his words, he said, I saw that Jesus treats me the same as he treats other people. I said, What do you mean by that? And he said, Well, he said, I was the president of a of the LGBT advocacy group in another college nearby. And he said the whole premise of our group was we're different. We're special. We have a parade. You celebrate us. And he said when it came around to Pride Month, that the issue was which, which companies can we guilt into giving us the most stuff because we're different? But as he began to encounter the gospel of Jesus, he realised Jesus doesn't have a different gospel for LGBT plus people. Jesus has one gospel for all of us. He treats us the same. Jesus' message levels the playing field. And what this young lad began to realise is there is a level of equality that you get with the message of Jesus Christ that you don't get in a secular culture that prides itself on equality. And so he was beginning to see the wisdom of God. As Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Or you think about our culture's supposed wisdom when it comes to love. Uh, love is love, we're told. I heard a, 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 someone who is, is advocating for gay marriage within the, the Christian world once said, well, God is love, and, and so me and my, my same-sex partner, we feel love, and therefore if God is love and we experience love, then God is for our love, and therefore the church should, should allow us to marry that is the wisdom of this world. And it is so compelling to so many. But it is, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that destroys the wisdom of the wise. God is love doesn't mean that anything I call love, God blesses. God is love means God knows far more about love than I do. And so I need to listen to God to show me how to love. I need God's wisdom to show me how to rightly order my loves. God is love means that actually, it's not that God is really good at love, that we're quite good at it, but God is even better at it. No, it means God knows love in a way that we do not It is fundamental to him. He never has to switch it on or work himself up to it. And God shows us how to rightly love the different kinds of of people we have in our lives. People say love is love, but no one actually believes that. Consider the the following statements I, I love my mother, I love my wife. I love my dog and, I don't know, I love sausages. Love is love. So presumably all of those different instances of love are interchangeable. Well obviously they're not. When, when we talk about love for a parent or love for a spouse or love for a pet or love for a food, we, we instinctively sort those loves into slightly different categories. Everyone knows that. That's just what we do. People who don't do that end up being the subject of documentaries. <laughs> no one really believes that love is love. It it works as a hashtag, it doesn't work as a guide to real life. God is love means we will never be more loving than when we are living towards one another in the way that God tells us to. We will never love people more or better by disobeying God. I was uh, chatting to a, a couple of ladies at church recently, and they had been a lesbian couple for about 15 years, I think. And about a year ago, they both came to faith and, and joined our church, and it, it lovely having them with us. And one of the things they, they said to me was this. They said, listen, our friendship is so much richer now that we are sisters in Christ than it ever was when we were lovers. The gospel wasn't leading them into less love. The gospel was leading them into better love. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Or think about our our culture's supposed wisdom when it comes to intimacy. In our culture, we have so collapsed the idea of intimacy into sex that we can't really conceive of there being any kind of intimacy that isn't ultimately about sex. So when we hear, for example, previous generations talking about such deep friendship and intimacy, we kind of roll our eyes and think, oh, well, they they must have been gay. Because if they're describing something that sounds like rich intimacy, it must actually be sexual in nature. And so we assume that any, any framework of thinking that puts constraints on who we can be sexually involved with is telling us to have less intimacy in life. And so again, the pushback I hear as a, as a Christian from, you know, repeatedly is you are forcing people to live a life without intimacy by calling them to follow the Bible sexual ethic you're actually asking people to live a shriveled kind of existence. Because in the wisdom of our culture, intimacy must mean sex. And so any kind of boundary to sex is actually a boundary to intimacy and therefore dooming people to a life of isolation. But the Bible shows us that is not the case. You can have lots and lots and lots of sex and not be experiencing intimacy. Similarly, you can have lots of intimacy, genuine intimacy of being truly known and loved by another human being that is nothing to do with sex. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in the life of Paul. Uh, Some time ago, a young guy started coming to my church and um, he was pretty open about the fact that he was gay, he was in a long-term relationship. And uh, after a few months of, of attending our church, he, he, he said to, to us once, he said, I, I feel drawn to Jesus Christ and I'd actually like to get baptized. And so we sat down with him and said, listen, that's just, we're just so thrilled to hear that. We love having you here. We're thrilled that you are feeling drawn to Jesus Christ. But here's, here's what Jesus wants people to know before they take any public steps in following him. I said, the first thing you've got to know is that actually being a Christian means that, that Jesus is going to be Lord of your life. So I just need to check, are you, are you willing to make Jesus the one who is in charge of your life? Because that's what being a Christian is. It's not just that we, we kind of like Jesus or admire Jesus, but we're actually, we're going to submit to Jesus. We're going we're to give him the steering wheel. Are you, do you feel like you know Jesus well enough to trust him to run your life for you? And he said, yeah, I do. I said, that's just great. Here's the other thing you need to know. Jesus is so upfront about this. Jesus wants people to know that actually submitting to him is at times going to be incredibly painful. Jesus actually says it: it's denying yourself and taking up your cross. It's losing your life to save it. In other words, there is going to, be, there is going to come a time when following Jesus is going to feel like it's killing you. So what I want to know is, do you think you know Jesus well enough to trust him even when it feels like he's taking from you the very thing you most need in order to live as fully as you can? And he said, I really do. I said, great, let's get you baptised. Let's do this. Now, I didn't want to go up to him before he got baptised and say, hey, this is what you're going to have to do if you become a Christian. You're going to have to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. I didn't want to presume to know the order in which his sanctification to take place. What was more concerning to me was, does he have the right disposition of his heart towards Jesus? Because if he does, if he trusts Jesus enough to follow him, even when Jesus is confounding him, then I think he really is a Christian, and he's already set up to anticipate those kinds of, of, of trials and that kind of cost of discipleship. Well, he he broke up with his partner. He he moved out several months after his baptism. I said to him, "Say, you, you know, you guys were living together for a long time. You've been living on your own now for a few months. Um, how's that going for you? Is it? I mean, that must be difficult." He said, it is. I I miss having that one person to come home to at the end of each day and just download my day to I said, yeah, I can get that. That must be hard. But then he said, but I've never had so many friends in my life. And I thought... And most people in my church don't know his background. They don't know his story. He wasn't anyone's kind of project. But I remember thinking, way to go, church. Any number of things we do pretty badly in my church, but that was one thing. That I thought, actually, that's great. We've, that is the church doing church well. I've never had so many friends in my life. Why? Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. In our pursuit for what we think is intimacy, we end up missing out on intimacy. In our pursuit for what we think is love, actually we end up missing out on love. In our pursuit of what we think of as equality, we miss out on equality. We only ultimately find those things in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the reason is because God's wisdom really is wise. Our wisdom really is pretty hopeless. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And we're not going to have the snappy one-liner, mic-drop thing that's just going to you know, sweep all of culture into our churches overnight but we are going to have lives lived out according to biblical wisdom. And that is God's mic drop. That his foolishness is wiser than men. Let me pray. Father, we thank you, we praise you, we worship you. For the cross of Jesus Christ. This message that is so ridiculous and unimpressive. This message of a man hanging naked in humiliation, in defeat, in weakness...